Hello, everybody. You're listening to a Bitcoin and Markets live stream. My name is Ansel Lindner, and on this show, I give you a unique perspective on Bitcoin, macro, and geopolitics. You can find me all over. Follow me on Twitter at Ansel Lindner. The Telegram channel is doing really well, so go to t.me forward slash Bitcoin and Markets to join there to listen to these live streams live. You can find the show in any podcast app. Just search for Bitcoin and Markets or go to bitcoinandmarkets.com forward slash find dash us and you can find most big podcast apps will be listed there. We're also on Rumble and Odyssey so you can find our channels and go subscribe and give us likes so we can um, reach more people over there on those video apps. We have lost our YouTube channel. And lastly, make sure you're subscribed over on bitcoinandmarkets.com to get notified of all of my content. All right, let's jump in to today's topics. All right, today there is kind of a dearth of news. I mean, we've had so much news over the last couple of weeks that this today, the last 24 hours kind of, kind of feels a little bit slow. Uh, but I did post some interesting things in the Telegram group overnight. So a really cool video talking about shipping and I'll give this TLDR because I have noticed a few people now jumping onto the shipping bandwagon. I I have been talking about these different charts for, I don't know, a year, 18 months or something about the cost of shipping containers, you know, and different shipping routes. And even on FedWatch, my podcast I do with Bitcoin Magazine, they, I've been actually showing the charts and talking about these these shipping charts but a lot of people are starting to show that how shipping rates have come back down um anyway this video that i posted in telegram goes through talking about you know how the traffic on the west coast is very very slow but the traffic on the east coast has not slowed it's actually above average um so that's interesting. I think he's, he mentioned in the video, if you take the total volume at all ports in the U.S., it's actually above average. So it's not like it's um, uh, shrinking dramatically or anything. It's just being rerouted away from California to the East Coast. Another part of this video I thought was very interesting was uh, his, the piracy aspect of it. So um, he talked a lot about how there was a bad problem with piracy before 1987 when there was some international agreement. And I have to look into that because I'm not familiar with this 1987 agreement. And after which time the U S really, you know, um, maintained order on the seas. And that makes kind of sense because that was towards the end of the Soviet union and, uh, kind of the rise of China and the rise of more globalization really kicking into high gear. So um, that makes sense that that was at that time. But what he doesn't really go into, I mean, he does talk about drones being used against some ships like in the Persian Gulf. Apparently there were some Iranian drones that were flown into uh, so a, a ship that had explosives on it. So there, there is a lot of worry out there about those type of attacks, that type of piracy, I guess, if you're sailing within several miles of the coastline, you are free. Uh, you're just a big target, slow moving target for these type of drones, uh, which is kind of an interesting angle. 
But what he didn't go into was how in the future, in deglobalization, uh, there is going to be a rise, more of a rise of piracy again, which is one of my uh, kind of beliefs, core beliefs, not maybe not core beliefs, but that that's one of the effects that's going to come from this globaliz- deglobalization. Um, he also touched touched on sexual harassment in the merchant marines, and uh, I've heard about this really bad in the Navy and the Coast Guard. Of course, I was in the Air Force, and it was pretty much the biggest personnel issue uh, that was talked about, and we did training on it and all this stuff for sexual harassment and even rape and all these other things. So um, I, I know it's a very, very big problem, um, but it's a problem almost of their own making. So anyway, there's a lot of problems with when you take away the moral and the social, societal and the cultural protections away from women. This is what it kind of degrades into because you know, they used to be the fairer sex. They used to be very held up on pedestals and things. Uh, and now they're not. They're just as dirty mouthed as the men sailors. Right. If you think about it, what the saying where, you know, you used to uh, sound like a sailor is because they swore all the time and they were just kind of barbarians almost. And that is now we're telling our women to be like that, right? That they should want to be like that. And when you put the, when you make these people have the similar attitudes in that way, and then you put them together on a boat for six months, I can see how it's going to cause a lot of problems. But anyway, that is just something that I noticed in that video what else do we have just kind of going through the telegram stuff today um i am going to read the harvard paper real quick or an article about the harvard paper that will be coming up here in a few minutes what else um i did release yesterday's podcast and all the podcast apps and on rumble and odyssey this morning i really like odyssey's ui i mean i like it better than than youtube's it's a very very good user experience, at least for the creators that are putting up videos. Uh, It just is very streamlined, very fast, very um, simple. I like it. Rumble, not not the the case. And Rumble's slower too. Like Rumble takes a long time to process the video. It takes like 30 minutes to process a video that isn't even a video. It's just an audio track with a freaking one image on it. And it takes them a half an hour to process this on Rumble. And it takes odyssey like four minutes so and youtube might take 10 minutes right so there is those are the differences between these platforms but yeah that's up there you guys can find that what else oh this kind of brought up some controversy or or some discussion maybe in in the telegram group this morning was i posted a study and i i just saw it on twitter and i grabbed the image from we are breitbart and it says study male fertility plummets 62% worldwide and is accelerating so i think this i mean demographics we talk about that a lot and i think it's a super fascinating conversation especially when we talk about politics mixed in with demography so you have like um you know rural areas and conservatives Religious folk tend to have more children and the urban folk, they tend to have fewer children and the, the liberals and the socialists tend to have fewer children. So over time, you know, it, you can tell that it's just, it's always going to be an uphill battle for socialists and Marxists. You know, they try to redefine language. They try to redefine culture. They try to redefine history. 
they tr- they paint history like we are making history that's like one of the things the marxists uh think about all the time is we are in charge of how history is seen and taught and read we are making history today they're making history from 50 years ago because they can lie about it and mold society to see history in a different way that makes our present different right so they that is one of the things the marxists do um but anyway they're constantly fighting uphill because of demography you know like if they i bet if you took uh They probably have studies about this, but I bet conservative fertility rates for women are like three and one for liberals. And given enough time, given just one generation at that rate, you know, you're going to have a huge shift in a voter base, which is very, very interesting. Um, But I also think for Bitcoiners, it's important to have kids. Uh, because obviously, especially or big Bitcoiners that have discovered Bitcoin and know about Bitcoin early on. So f- we're still early, but so from this point before, like uh, people that have discovered Bitcoin up to this point, they are kind of, uh, they're different. They're more insightful about certain things. You know, they understand money. They understand economics a little bit better. And they will teach their children to understand economics. I mean, one way I found Bitcoin was because my father made me a gold bug and made me get into Austrian economics from a very young age and objectivism from Ayn Rand and all that. So from a very young age, I was introduced to this. And so Bitcoin, when I ran across Bitcoin, it just made sense, right? And now the next generation of Bitcoiners are going to be exposed from birth the same way I was exposed to these things. And we're going to make more and more Bitcoiners just that way. Um, So it's very important for Bitcoiners to have children. And as a, just a humankind thing, we don't want to, I mean, it's uh, the globalists, they like to say that we need to reduce the population, but man, reducing the population it brings misery, not not just that you have to kill people, that, but let's just say you don't reproduce, right? And you live a long life. You, the economy will still collapse around you. You'll be going back to the Stone Age. One of the things about Russia is a lot of their expertise is getting old. So they're running out of demographic time because a lot of their expertise is getting old and they don't have these young people to replace these old experts pretty much that were educated in their trade, whether it's the energy, you know, the, the grid, energy grid, uh, high technology of manufacturing or whatever. These people all came up in the Soviet Union and towards the end of the Soviet Union, and they are getting old. They're about ready to retire. Now, what's the next generation is doesn't have this expertise. What are they going to do? Will they even be able to keep the lights on? So it's very important to have um, good demographics and have uh, have this expertise handed down and knowledge. So Bitcoiners have this knowledge. We hand it down to the next generation and on and on. So uh, I don't know. I thought it was a, a interesting kind of topic to bring up in the Telegram. And people, my main thing was, I just said, make babies, fellas. We have a few comments in here about 
oh, it's not a good time to have babies or it's not, uh, there's no incentive to have babies. But of course, that's wrong because we are created to replicate and that will create, I mean, that's its own incentive, right? To fulfill your internal drive to have children, to, to have a family. That is its own incentive. Um, so just because the world is working against you, that's why you have to understand the world and put yourself and your family in the best place possible. Um, that's part of providing for your family, providing and protecting. But anyway, I um, thought that was an interesting little discussion that we had. What else? Okay, let's pull up a chart here. So guys listening on Twitter Spaces, welcome. I hope Twitter Spaces does not cut out. It has the last three days, but we will go and see how long we can last. I'm going to bring up this chart and I'm going to post it in Telegram. So if you want to join the Telegram, t.me forward slash Bitcoin and Markets, you can join our conversation over there. Actually paying members $5 a month on BitcoinandMarkets.com then you can comment, but you guys can go see all of the stuff I'm posting and all the other comments people are making. It's, I would say 25% Bitcoin and 75% other stuff. All right, sorry, bringing up the candles here. Going to a four hour chart. Let's take a look at this. I did post a chart earlier this morning in Telegram, but I'm gonna give, a, give you an updated one. So we are kind of coming up against this very minor resistance uh, that has formed above this bear flag that we're in. We bounced off of that resistance line and we'll see where this goes. I think the FUD has somewhat calmed down around Genesis and DCG. I saw that Falcon X now is starting to use Silvergate again. You know, that was a big thing that on that Dylan LeClaire thread, when I read that out to you guys that uh, I was just floored by that these companies were starting to cut out Silvergate because they thought Silvergate was insolvent. Um, but now Falcon X is back again, accepting Silvergate. So that kind of tells me that some of the worry, some of the panic has eased. And that's good for the price. That's good for the price because nothing has changed fundamentally for Bitcoin. I mean, if anything, like no, no news is bad news for Bitcoin. And so if we're in the headlines, that's good. That means people are talking about us. That means they're, they're getting familiar with the term. Even if it's in a negative light, it doesn't matter. People don't trust the media anyway. People see that SBF has not been taken to task by the financial press yet. They see that. They know that the trust of... Um, the major mainstream media outlets in the United States is something like 15% of people trust them. So if there's bad FUD about Bitcoin, you know, they know, oh, they're, they're talking about it and they get, you know, just repeated touches of the term Bitcoin and the idea behind Bitcoin. Even if it's bad news, I don't, that doesn't really matter long-term because if once you, somebody said this years ago and what, how old is Bitcoin now? It is thir 13 years old, right? So if somebody, a 12-year-old, I have three kids under 12. 
if they, they've only lived in a world with Bitcoin. And as we keep going and people keep talking about it, it becomes something that is just a given in this world. That is super, super bullish for the price. So anyway, I don't know where I was going with that exactly. Uh, but yeah, I think it is a hard slog to get up from here uh, for the price to go up from here. If it does that, I would, I would say as soon as it hits 19,000, I think we are done with this bear market. I, it's been so long and it's been so painful for so many people, even OG Bitcoiners have, like I was talking with Tone Vase when I interviewed him and he was saying, yeah, the reason why this is so painful is because when it touched 69,000, all the OG Bitcoiners thought it was going to a hundred easily. And then it crashed, right? We didn't get this huge blow off top. Like we usually get, it just kind of double top rounded over and then fell. It's just very psychologically draining for even the OGs in the space. And so when people on Twitter, they say, oh, just stay humble and stack sats. It's so easy to do. No, it's not. It's not. It's hard to hodl. It's very, very hard to hodl. And that's one thing that this show can provide is some sort of therapy, you know, talking about Bitcoin and, and hearing a, a perma bull like myself talk about Bitcoin all the time. That makes it a little bit easier for people to hodl through these bear markets. So I hope I can play a little bit of part in that. All right, what else do we have? I posted another chart this morning, and that is the uh, rates. So the 10-year, 30-year, and 5-year are all in the Fed funds range, which is just crazy. Uh, I also saw that the 10-year is falling further this morning. So can the Fed hike if rates are below the Fed funds rate? I personally, I mean, they can. They can. I personally don't think they will because their choice is something that they they cannot make the other choice, which is to raise rates and destroy confidence in the Fed, to, to pull the curtain back on the wizard and see that they aren't in control. They're not going to raise rates. No way. They have failed so far. They, I mean, they do have a week left or whatever, uh, two weeks till their meeting. But so far, they failed to jawbone these rates higher and to give themselves room to hike. So um, we'll see. We'll see how that is. But so far, rates are sinking. All right, what else do we have? Let's go into this story on the Harvard paper. So I talked about this. It's from, I believe it's from Matthew Ferranti is how you pronounce his name, but we'll read through this and see, but um, he is a professor at Harvard and he wrote this paper about central banks needing to buy Bitcoin as part of their reserves. And it's very, very interesting. So let's get into this. The headline is, this is from Politico and the headline is Harvard paper to central banks buy Bitcoin. Bitcoin was invented to circumvent the world's central banks. So the idea that those banks should start buying Bitcoin in bulk ranks somewhere from counterintuitive to far-fetched. Um, but after Western governments froze, uh, sorry, after 
my kids are screaming upstairs right now. They're off school for Thanksgiving. Uh, they're kind of distracting me a little bit here. All right, let's start that over. But after Western governments froze Russia's foreign exchange reserves early this year, speculation mounted that some central banks would acquire cryptocurrency as a form of insurance against financial blockades from the U.S. and its allies. In the months since, it has remained little more than speculation. But the idea has remained a fixation among Bitcoin investors who tend not to support U.S. foreign policy objectives and who view it as a good thing that crypto could provide a workaround. Crypto can't, Bitcoin can't. Bitcoiners' hope, hopes often revolve around the Gulf states with their large cash reserves and often fraught relationships with the West. In August, a Twitter account inspired by the possibility, Sheik Roberto, uh, sprouted up to provide Bitcoin usage and slam the Fed in posts from El Salvador. Last week, we pressure tested this idea in conversations with crypto entrepreneurs. On Okay, get to the part here, what we're talking about. Franti argues that it makes sense for many central banks to hold a small amount of Bitcoin under normal circumstances and much more Bitcoin if they face sanctions risks. Though his analysis finds gold is more useful sanctioned hedge. DFD caught up with Ferranti at Harvard to discuss the working paper, which has been peer-reviewed since its initial publication late last month. The question is, what are the implications of your findings? You can read op-eds, for example, in the Wall Street Journal where people say, quote, we overused sanctions. It's going to come back to bite us because people are not going to want to use dollars, end quote. But the contribution of my paper is to put a number on that and say, okay, how big of a deal is this really? How much should we be concerned about it? The numbers that come out of it are that, yeah, it is a concern. It's not just you change your treasury bonds by 1% or something. It's a lot bigger than that. The next question is, rather than hedging sanctions risk with Bitcoin, shouldn't governments just avoid doing bad things? There's not just one thing that gets you added to the U.S. sanctions list. If the only thing that could get you sanctioned, for example, was to invade another country, then most countries, as long as they don't plan to invade their neighbors, probably don't need to care about this at all. And so my research becomes less relevant. But it's kind of a nebulous thing. That might make countries pause and think about how reliable is the U.S.? Right, it's a confidence thing. The paper doesn't say anything about whether applying sanctions is good or bad. There's a huge literature on how effective sanctions are or ineffective they are. And I think the number that comes out of that is like a third of the time they work. Of course, they can have unintended consequences, like hurting the population of the country that you're sanctioning. Next question. We hear a lot about crypto and sanctions evasion, but from the perspective of central bank reserves, you find that gold is more useful, a more useful hedge. Why? Because it, because it is much less volatile. It's like five times less volatile. Okay. Next question. So why would a central bank bother with Bitcoin? They're not correlated. They both sort of jump around. So there's diversification benefit to having both. And if you can't get enough gold to hedge your sanctions risk adequately, think about a country that has very poor infrastructure, doesn't have the capability to store, store large amounts of gold, or countries whose reserves are so large 
that they can they simply cannot buy enough gold places like singapore and china you can't just turn around and buy 100 billion dollars worth of gold why not uh, the the here what he's doing here is very interesting because he says that bitcoin is more volatile right and then he says you can't buy enough gold of course you can but what would happen the price would become volatile so it, it's a very weird thing that he's not maybe he put it together in the paper but it's something that he's not connecting the dots on here the reason bitcoin is volatile is because it has a very fixed supply and people want it you know it has swings in demand that gold would be just as volatile if there was just as many people buying and selling gold so all right here we go based on russia's the question is based on russia's disastrous experience with privatization in the 90s some would say the lesson of recent history for non-western countries is quote beware of harvard economists bearing advice should people trust your findings? This is a framework for thinking about this topic. You may or may not agree with the assumptions built into it. Change the number and rerun the thing, and you'll get results that are personalized to your beliefs. Next question. If you were advising the Treasury Department on its sanctions policy, what would you tell them? I think the decision to freeze a country's reserves is so consequential that it would have to be made by the president. What would you tell the president? Question. Try to put concreteness on the nebulousness of how we apply sanctions. Okay, that doesn't tell me anything. Um, all right. I think that's it for this article. It goes on to other stuff, but all right. Very interesting. Very, very interesting. It's it's good that a Harvard guy, Harvard professor, which who I've never heard of and which doesn't really mean anything really. I mean, MIT is really big into Bitcoin and stuff, but um, this is the first major person that's not a Bitcoiner that's talking about, hey, we need to, the governments need to start owning Bitcoin in their reserves. So the idea is getting out there. Um. I wonder if he cites any Bitcoiners in his paper. That would be that would be interesting. But uh, what else do I think about this? I think that Bitcoin will be adopted by governments, central banks, and it will happen faster than we think. So we already have El Salvador, of course. We have a couple other countries. I think didn't the Central African Republic or whatever it's called, they made Bitcoin legal tender as well. Um, Tonga was going to do it before they had the volcano eruption. I don't know what the, their progress is up to this point, uh, but some of these smaller countries, and, and it's interesting that these, all these countries were on a outside monetary standard. They didn't have their own currencies. They were tied to an outside standard with uh, El Salvador being on the U S dollar and central African Republic being on I think the French franc, right? Or the African franc. And then Tonga, I think they're on the US dollar as well. I still maintain that I think that Bitcoin will be adopted by the US as one of the first countries. Just look at all the CBDC talk. Every country seemingly wants a CBDC except for the United States. 
Europe really wants it. Canada now is starting to talk about it. China, of course, has their pilot program that's still going on. Um, many, many countries out there, all the major G7 countries want CBDCs except for the United States. And if they are trying to compete against the dollar, trying to kick the dollar out of its reserve status, whether that's a good thing or bad thing for the United States, all the, the U.S. has to do is back it with Bitcoin or back it with gold. Um, so it's a very easy out for the U.S. to maintain its status against any sort of foreign powers that want to try to compete with the dollar. All the dollar has to do is back itself with gold or Bitcoin, revalue gold or revalue Bitcoin. And that that would be this was this has been a talking point in the gold bug community for a very long time and jim rickards that that's one of the things that he became famous for was saying that they are just going to revalue gold based on current price levels right so overnight the government could come out and say you know gold is 10,000 an ounce now something like that well they could do something similar with bitcoin and say that a dollar is a hundred sats, a hundred satoshis, or one penny is one satoshi. They could do something like that in the future to back the dollar. So the dollar is has a long history. It's changed a lot over the years, you know, being silver, uh, being gold, uh, being changing the weight of the gold, then being Bretton Woods. And then finally, with this credit-based dollar that we have today. So the dollar has already morphed many, many times. It is not going to ever go away, at least for the next several hundred years, it'll still be around. It will just be backed by something different, whether it goes back to gold or it goes to Bitcoin. Another thing I've said for a long time is a very big attack against Bitcoin is the gold standard. If governments decide to go back to a gold standard for the same reasons why they would decide to go to a Bitcoin standard, because they need a commodity money that is that takes a lot of the trust in the world. As the trust breaks down in globalization, you need a neutral currency uh, to trade amongst a multipolar world. And gold fits that. But so obviously does Bitcoin. Bitcoin is a better um a better solution because it can settle anywhere in the world in 10 minutes, right? But there, the attack vector of going back to a gold standard is definitely there. And the reason why they would do that is because they own all the gold. I saw a little, one of these infographic videos that was on Twitter and it showed all of the countries by their gold holdings. But the question you have to ask is, where is that gold actually held? A lot of that is held in New York City, you know, in the United States. Supposedly, there is rumors about 9-11, some of the gold disappearing. But anyway, it's supposed to be held in the United States. And if we went back to a gold standard, the U.S. could just be like, oh, look, we seized Russia's uh, reserves in dollars and we, we seized your reserves held in gold. That is is on our territory. So that could be a reason for the U.S. to go back to a gold standard because they have all of the gold and it fulfills a lot of the functions that Bitcoin 
going to a Bitcoin standard will fulfill, that wouldn't kill Bitcoin, but it would definitely set Bitcoin back on its adoption S-curve, whatever, by decades, probably, uh, maybe a whole lifetime, uh, because the gold standard is a relatively good standard to have, and it would take a long time for Bitcoin to be adopted if we had a relatively good monetary system in the first place. So anyways, um, enough on that. All right, I'm going to open it up now for guys on Telegram to make any comments that you would like while I'm waiting for hand. Oh, Raphael, right away. Here, I'll bring you in. Go ahead. All right, so relaying the question. Yep, did you have something else? Okay, so the question is, how is the Fed pivoting um, bullish for Bitcoin and stocks? Um. It, there and you wanted me to be more specific. <laughs> it there isn't really a hugely specific answer to this. Um, you know, if the market is deteriorating, at, which is why rates are going down naturally, forcing the Fed to make a policy pivot. You know, you would expect why would that be bullish for stocks and bullish for Bitcoin? Because I I think the one of the reasons why stocks and Bitcoin and risk assets in general have been suppressed is because of the overly bearishness, the over hawkishness of the Federal Reserve. So it's not a, they don't have a mechanical way that they do what they do. The mechanical the, the mechanism is that they talk their narrative, they affect market psychology, and then the market will move in somewhat the direction that they want it to move. Um, there is no mechanical way that they move the market. So to be specific about a mechanical way that a pivot would be bullish, I can't really do that. I just have to say, like, I think the psychology of the market has pushed stocks and Bitcoin to an oversold condition. And I also think, and so uh, any sort of pivot would remove that hawkishness and correct the oversold condition by making them go higher. What else would I say about that? Um, there is a concern that, you know, they're pivoting because we're going into recession and recession is bearish and, and all of this thing. But my position is that the U S at least is not going to have a very deep recession. I think we are going to have a longer, mild recession, and we eventually are going to go back again to the post-GFC normal of low growth, low inflation. Because this, the, what, like if you zoom out really far out and you look at this from 30,000 feet, what we have here in the globe over the entire global economy is debt saturation. And you can't get out of debt saturation by adding more debt. You can only kick the can down the road. But you can't kick the can down the road to high growth. High growth is gone. High growth is over until we change the money, until we get out of this debt trap. And you get out of the debt trap by a deflationary contraction. You have to... Uh, have a debt collapse, a credit collapse, 
a deflationary contraction to clear that debt, go to some new money that's not credit-based money and build up from there. So they can kick the can down the road. And in this time period that we, so we're still zoomed way far out. In that time period, uh, Bitcoin has benefited because people are looking for monetary alternatives all the time. And so Bitcoin serves this, it's a deflation hedge, just like it's an inflation hedge. So that's about as specific as I can be, man. Um, I don't know. What Did that help? All right. What's up, Sven? Got to unmute yourself. Yeah, I got it. Hey, Angela. Um, if countries were to go back on a gold standard, would that force them to settle trade balances in gold, or how does that work? Um, yeah, so the question is, if we if they went back to a gold standard, would they have to settle in gold? Traditionally, they haven't settled very often in gold. They usually would, you know, maybe settle accounts every year, every couple years, because you have to send gold across the oceans, and that's extremely uh, risky, extremely dangerous. So they probably, it it would, yeah. Are you saying that it sets them up just to repeat the same mistakes again? Yeah, I'm just. You're. I guess you kind of mentioned that it might last for a hundred years or however long if they go back to the gold standard, but it might. They might destroy themselves quicker. <laughs> yeah. Um, so he said that they might not last a hundred years. They might destroy themselves quicker. That's possible. It might also open more people's eyes, right? Then more people, oh, we're going back to gold standard. Why, why would that be? What's, what's the deal? What's uh, so good about gold and what about Bitcoin? You know, so it might open up people's minds. It might uh, make the Bitcoin revolution happen faster. Uh, I think that is also a possibility, but my opinion at least is that a gold standard, if you have a relatively good monetary system, the need for Bitcoin is vastly diminished. So yeah, that's what I would say. All right, Robert, man, lots of questions today or lots of comments. Go ahead, Robert. What's up? Very good question. Okay. So the question is, um, wouldn't gold restrict politicians and restrict the government's ability to spend money and do all their crazy programs? Um, so why would they go back to a gold standard? I think that's that is the case. Uh, I have two points. And that, well, that's why it's hard to go back to a gold standard or to a Bitcoin standard. But two points is uh, one, they don't understand money anyway. I mean, very few people in this world understand money at all. You know, we have the Bitcoin community is relatively well educated. Uh, the gold bug community is relatively well educated. You have a few economists that are in the mainstream economics that understand Bitcoin or sorry, understand money. Uh, but even the mainstream econ uh, economists, like at the fed, they don't understand money. So the politicians don't understand money. And that is maybe a way to sneak it past them in some way, shape or form. Um, also, well, a third point, well, let me make my second point. Uh, the, the second one is that we will, be there will be a political revolution of sorts um you know maybe not a revolt like a violent revolution but there will be a revolution in the minds and hearts of the people 
we see this all around the world, right, with the rise of the conservative right in almost every Western country, at least. Um, the populist rise, we see it even like in India with Modi. Um, you know, we're seeing this all over the place. And so there is going to be this political mind shift back towards conservatism, and that will help the transition towards a sound money. And I had a third point there, but damn, I forgot what it was. Uh, so I hope that answers the question. Yes, sir. All right. Well, I'm going to cut it there, guys. Thanks for participating. Thanks for joining me on this Wednesday. We do have a FedWatch episode coming up at, should be 3 p.m. Eastern. Uh, a lot of their live stream crew is on vacation, you know. Um, so CK and I are going flying solo at 3 p.m. Eastern. So check us out on Bitcoin Magazine's YouTube channel. All right, guys. Hope you have a wonderful Thanksgiving. Spend it with uh, friends and family. That's what's important. And don't worry about the bear market. <laughs> All right, guys. See you tomorrow. Well, maybe I won't be recording tomorrow. So probably see you on Friday um, after Thanksgiving. All right. Later. <laughs>